On July 1, 1874, four-year-old Charlie Ross was abducted by two men and became the very first victim of kidnap for ransom in the United States. 65 years later, in 1939, a man named Gustav Blair came forward to claim that he was Charlie Ross, the little boy who, by all accounts, was never heard from again after he disappeared. Is it possible that Charlie and Gustav are one and the same? If this story sounds familiar, it should, because I brought you the case of Charlie Ross in episode 3 of Dying to be Found the Dash. But keep listening, because today we have a special guest with even more facts about Charlie's story that just may get us a little closer to the truth. from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Right after our Charlie Ross episode aired, I received an email from Rod Miller, one of our listeners who has kindly agreed to talk with me today about this case. Rod will give us a brief overview of Charlie Ross, plus first-hand knowledge from his own findings about Charlie Ross, which will help us to connect the dots between what I first responded in episode three of The Dash. Hi, Rod. How are you? So glad that you are here today. Thank you, Deborah. I'm very happy to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Hey, I am so enthralled with the mystery and myths beyond what I learned when I first looked into this case by myself, and I really cannot wait to hear what you've learned from your own research. And from my understanding, Rod, you put a ton of research into this. So I thought it would be a great idea for you to walk us through your findings from the very beginning. Okay, I'll try to do that. Can you give us a brief background on Charlie Ross? Sure. First, Deborah, you did a really nice job in your podcast uh, summarizing the Charlie Ross kidnapping, and the, you were very accurate. And the detail was really good. Thank you. So I'll just give a brief summary for your listeners that don't uh, maybe didn't see that and would rather just start here. The kidnapping of Charlie Ross happened in 1874, and it's known as the first kidnapping for ransom in America. The story about it has been told many times in books and newspapers, magazines, scholarly, historical crime journals, and now in podcasts like yours. There was extensive uh, newspaper coverage both across the United States and abroad. Charlie Ross and his brother Walter were kidnapped on July 1st, 1874, by two men in front of the Ross home in Germantown. That's a Philadelphia neighborhood. And it happened despite the warnings of their father, don't take candy from strangers. Now, you and I have heard that. Because we have. Because passed down from generation to generation. Do you think that's where that really started from? Never know, but... Yes, another first. The kidnapping, and that that saying. Mm -hmm. Well, the kidnappers released uh, Walter, but they kept Charlie. After 23 ransom notes between the kidnappers and Christian Ross, and several attempts to retrieve the child, unfortunately, he was never returned to the family. The most legitimate lead in attempting to find Charlie's kidnappers involved two burglars, William Mosier and Joseph Douglas. 
1875, just six months after the kidnapping, while attempting to rob a home of a local judge in New York, both men were shot. Mosier was killed instantly, and while dying, his partner Douglas confessed they had kidnapped Charlie Ross. Both of them had been under suspicion in investigation for the kidnapping. The brother-in-law of Mosier, his name was William Westervelt, was later convicted of complicity in the kidnapping. The police pursued many, many leads and suspects over the years, but Charlie was never found. Christian Ross spent the rest of his life looking for his son until he died in 1897 after investigating hundreds of leads. By the time of his death in 1943, Walter, his brother, said there had been over 5,000 claims to be his lost brother. That always amazes me, Rod, when people come forward like that. What What's the motive? The motive for the kidnapping? You said 5,000 people came forward to claim that they were Charlie Ross? Right. And most of them seemed to be interested in what they thought was the Ross fortune. Christian Ross was known to be a businessman, and he owned a business and was thought to be very wealthy. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a significant stock market crash in the early 1870s. And Christian Ross, Ross lost a lot of his money. Mm-hmm. So how are you connected with Charlie Ross? Well, it's an interesting story as well, because on February 4th, 1939, Gustav Blair... An Arizona man that is was known as a gardener, a painter, a carpenter, kind of a handyman, legally asserted in a court of law that he was Charlie Ross. He told a Maricopa County court he was hidden in Lee County, Illinois, by the Miller family, who were complicit in the kidnapping. He said the Millers raised him as their own son, Nelson Miller, but he later changed his name to Gustav Blair. I am a descendant of the Miller family, and the jury that heard this case and declared that he was, in fact, Charlie Ross, they got it wrong, and we have since proven he is actually my great-uncle, Nelson Miller. That is absolutely amazing. When you first contacted me, Rod, I just couldn't believe what I was reading and the information that you gave me. And I just have no words with how much research that you've done in this whole case. So how did you first become involved with investigating this case? Well, I was 26 years old and in graduate school when I visited my parents in Mason City, Iowa. That was in 1977. I'm from a family of 10 boys and three girls. I'm the youngest of the 10 boys. My father took me into the basement of our home and took out a collection of documents from a wet, mildewed cardboard drum and said, this is the story of Charlie Ross. That's all he said. How did that conversation get started? Were you in the kitchen having some tea? What was happening? Yeah, well, yeah I just was home visiting and he said, uh, I want to take, I want to show you something. And he took wow. me down to the basement. Uh, there was not, there was never any discussion of Charlie Ross. I didn't know him from a hot rock. He'd never brought it up until that day. Yeah, till that day. Wow. We, we've uh, later have referred to this set of documents as the Black Satchel. And I regret my dad and I never spoke about it again. Really? Those documents home and I laid out 234 mostly typewritten onion skin papers to dry. They were water and mildew damaged. They smelled. And this group of documents, my father, when he gave them to me, said they belonged to his father and said, this is Charlie Ross. So among other documents was a draft of a book that my grandfather was writing titled Hunting for the Lost Charlie Ross. 
Also was my great-grandfather's signed confession that he murdered one of the kidnappers. There was a tintype photo of Charlie Ross and multiple affidavits that were testifying to the detail of the kidnapping. It looked pretty legitimate. Wow. So after studying those documents and taking into consideration my grandfather had committed murder and confessed to it, and my family was involved with the kidnapping of a child, I decided I would just keep them hidden. But as I aged, I decided I would pass them on to my nephew, Larry Miller, in 2005. Larry is the son of my oldest brother and and resides now in Grimes, Iowa. So he digitally scanned and preserved all of the documents. Together, we decided we'd use modern technology, the internet, and eventually DNA to investigate the story. And we took on the personas of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Which one were you? I'm Dr. Watson. (laughs) How are Charlie Ross, Gustav Blair, and Nelson Miller related? That's a mouthful, all those three names, but you know they're the same person for our discussion here today. It's really complicated and convoluted, but I'll try to make it really simple as possible. But it all begins with the the man, Nelson Miller. Nelson Miller was born in Lee County in 1874, the same year that Charlie Ross was kidnapped. He was the seventh of 11 boys born to Rainier and Ann Miller. It's my great-grandparents. So Nelson Miller is your great-uncle? He is. Okay. So his father was a beekeeper and a farmer, well-known in the area, respected uh, man. So Nelson married and had six children, but he abandoned them in 1908 and went on a crime spree across the Midwest uh, with a friend, another man, and was finally arrested in Fresno, California, tried, convicted, and sentenced to Folsom Prison. Wow. He was paroled in 1915 to his brother, which is my grandfather, here in Minnesota, He then took on the name of Gustav Blair. So now we move from Nelson Miller to Gustav Blair. Mm -hmm. And Gustav Blair dominated the story that we're talking about in his pursuit of the name Charlie Ross. Mm -hmm. So over time, Gustav Blair gave a lot of explanations for why he changed his name. But we, as we'll talk a little bit later, we concluded that it was to conceal his criminal past. I see. So as early as 1932, he began promoting his claim that he was, in fact, Charlie Ross. And you might remember that right around that time was another famous kidnapping in America, the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping. Yes. So there was a lot of publicity and talk about child abduction and kidnapping and ransom. So that may have stimulated this contrived uh, story. We're not really sure, but it all happened at the same time. So Gustav Blair began promoting that he was Charlie Ross, and he told reporters that he had 12 affidavits that he would use in a court of law to prove that he was Charlie Ross. Those are the affidavits we found in the black satchel. So it all started coming together here. Wow. With his contention, he sued the Ross family to be recognized as their brother, and the Ross family just simply ignored his suit, ignored him, and didn't attend the trial. Gustav Blair's trial was heard before a jury on May 9, 1939, and they declared that he was, in fact, Charles 
Brewster Ross. It only took them eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, after 15 years of research in D and a DNA study, we have proven he, in fact, is Nelson Miller. He could not have been Charlie Ross. Wow. Do you think if the Ross family showed up to the trial that the outcome might may have been different? None of them showed up. They completely ignored him. Walter uh, Ross said, we know of this man and he is a fraud and none of them attended. So the trial and uh, went on uncontested. I see. Well, can you walk us through how DNA is analyzed and how you used it in your research? Sure. DNA, as you know, is the genetic code of a person's heredity, their physical development, their characteristics. It's passed from generation to generation through a system of X and Y chromosomes. So paternity studies using DNA can identify exactly who a person's parents are. But genealogical DNA testing is used to identify a broader perspective of a person's ancestral relationship. This first came up in 1999 when a scholar by the name of Tom Everly did really extensive research into the kidnapping of Charlie Ross and particularly Gustav Blair's claim. So we weren't the first, and we have since met and have become very close friends with Tom Everly. But he asked the Ross family at that time to participate in the paternity-type study with the Miller family to determine if Gustav Blair or Nelson Miller was, in fact, Charlie Ross. The family didn't even respond or answer his inquiry. So in 2011, we decided instead of proving Gustav Blair was Charlie Ross, we would prove he was not. And why DNA testing would not require the Ross family to be involved or to participate. And the reason is a man's male ancestry can be traced using DNA on the Y chromosome. Hmm. Y chromosome passes down almost unchanged from father to son, the genetic code. A man's test results are compared to another man's to determine if the two individuals share a common ancestor. And if the test results are perfect or nearly perfect, they are in fact related. And that's what we did. We identified uh, an accredited DNA test laboratory and they did our study. And on March 22nd, 2011, they reported the kinship test results. And what we did was we identified descendants of two children of Rainier and Ann Miller, the family that supposedly hit Charlie Ross. Wow. And we found two descendants that were well willing to participate in this study. We collected DNA from a male descendant of each two suspected Miller brothers, Harrison Miller and Nelson Miller, whom we know is also known as Gustav Blair. So DNA analysis determined that they had a 99.99903% probability of kinship, meaning they were in fact brothers. Okay. They shared the almost exact paternal lineage with a perfect 37-37 strand marker match. Wow. So as I said, Gustav Blair was a Miller, Nelson Miller. He could not have been Charlie Ross. We proved. That is phenomenal. I, I mean, science in itself, it's always a guessing game, but look how far we've come with DNA. That is so amazing. And I can't believe you put so much time into this. What was the timeline from the time that you sent the testing off to the firm until you got the results? It was uh, probably six months. We used uh, scientific procedures and changed of evidence because depending on the result, we didn't want our test to be questioned, challenged, or contaminated. Mm -hmm. uh, when we did the collection from the participants, the two men that we had traced that had direct lineage, one was my older brother, so 
he has the exact same Y DNA as I do. So we sent a forensic laboratory to each of the homes and they scientifically collected, recorded the specimens. And then the chain of evidence, the specimens never left the hands of a monitored DNA specialist. So that took a little more time, and we got the samples sent to the lab in uh, Texas. And it took them about three months, and they uh, reported the results. I see. So very methodical. That is just simply amazing. So you had mentioned that Gustav seems to have a checkered past. You had said that a couple of minutes ago. And can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's a sad kind of story, and it's kind of uh, not something I'm particularly proud of because he is my great uncle. But as I mentioned, Gustav Blair began his life as Nelson Miller in Dixon, rural Dixon, Illinois. And he married and had children. He abandoned them, as I mentioned. And he left Illinois with another man. And they allegedly committed crimes as they traveled for two years through Colorado, Idaho, in California, where it stopped, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. In 1910, when Nelson was 36 years old, he was convicted in Fresno, California, on two counts of embezzlement and was sentenced to nine years at Folsom Prison. After serving five of those, he was paroled, believe it or not, to his brother, Harrison Miller, my grandfather, in Owatonna, Minnesota, in 1915. Now, Harrison was a convicted felon, too. He had just been released from the Iowa State Penitentiary, where he served for cheating by false pretenses. And nowadays, that would be some kind of swindle. So here we have two convicted convict brothers living together, both on parole in Minnesota in 1915. Yes. So nine months after Nelson was released and put in the supervision of his brother, he was arrested again in Blue Earth, Minnesota. And sadly, this time he was charged with sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. Now, we speculate a lot about this because he came after five years out of a prison setting, and there's a lot of discussion about sexual activity and behavior in prison. So we could speculate about this, but the fact is he was arrested and was charged. He was held in the county jail for 55 days pending trial on the charge. He was released when the grand jury could not indict him on the charge. And when I spoke with the court historian in Blue Earth, they said it's not unusual for victim in these kinds of cases, especially juveniles, to refuse to testify. Mm-hmm. So Nelson was released from that situation. And then his son got into some difficulty and was also, incidentally, in the same jail in Blue Earth, Minnesota, on another charge from which his son was convicted and went to prison in Minnesota for three years. So Nelson, out of Owatonna, Minnesota, petitioned the Minnesota Parole Board for the early release of his son and said, I have a farm that I bought in South Dakota, and I want to put my son there to manage that farm, and he will be a respected citizen. And Minnesota believed him, and they released Ralph. And Ralph and Gustav Blair, Ralph now took on his name, and another Miller, attempted to swindle farmers and landowners out of about $60,000 in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And Gustav Blair was arrested at the Northwestern Train Depot, attempting to flee the city in uh, October of 1920. 
And he was convicted and sentenced for another three years in the state prison in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So you can see a checkered past is turning kind of darker and blacker as we go. It surprises me too with how many people, it just, the effort it takes to have that criminal activity as opposed to just having an honest living. It just baffles me. Yes, it's it was very contrived, planned, and deliberate. It wasn't like he was uh, accidentally involved in someone else's crime. Seven years after he left prison in South Dakota, uh, Gustav Blair married a woman by the name of Cora Eversall. And they had a license to marry in 1929. And since there was no record that Nelson had divorced his wife and th- their family of six children, it's likely this constituted bigamy as well. And based on the uh, records and the research we did, Nelson Miller, as Gustav Blair, appears to have committed many other crimes in his pursuit of the Charlie Ross name, including perjury in a court of law, subordination of perjury by bringing a witness in to testify to lie. Unfortunately, Nelson Miller, Gustav Blair, has an extremely checkered uh, and shameful uh, criminal past. So Gustav went on to take the Ross family to court, like you had mentioned, with that claim that he was Charlie Ross. And that's where this conversation between you and I came in. What was his motive? And why do you think that he was able to convince people that he was Charlie? Well, we have searched for that as well. And we believe the motive was money like most of his life, was swindle and cheat and deception and forgery. Before his 1939 trial, Gustav Blair made multiple statements that he had no interest in the Ross fortune. But immediately after the trial, he began pursuing his rightful inheritance as Charlie Ross. The Ross family said there is no fortune to be had. He didn't believe them. He tried to sell his story as a movie and then as a book. I even have a draft of the book that he had written by a ghostwriter, and it's called My Return from the Dead, The True Story of Charles Brewster Ross. Very original. (laughs) I have the original manuscript, and it is a very bad write. Anyway, so Gustav Blair, the new Charlie Ross, hired a law firm in Philadelphia to evaluate his legal standing with the Ross family and if he had any possibility of an inheritance, and he did not. So despite what he said, uh, he went after the money but got nothing. He traveled the country on a media blitz as well. So uh, Sherlock Holmes and I spent 20 years trying to determine how this happened, why, (laughs) when, and with whom it all came about. Within the Miller family... Kind of two theories have been discussed. And one is that Nelson Miller knew all along he was not Charlie Ross, but he collaborated with his two brothers to contrive this story that he thought he could convince a jury was true. And it was all for money. Mm -hmm. The other theory is that Nelson's older brother, Lincoln, manipulated him and convinced him that he was Charlie Ross. And he was a pawn of his older brother's deception, again, motivated for money. So we don't really think Gustav Blair convinced the world he was Charlie Ross, but that's how history actually records. Wow. It was 65 years after the kidnapping and the Ross family, they had aged and they had tired and they had accepted the fate of Charlie Ross. They just ignored him. So his 
history in that Maricopa County courtroom was met with a lot of skepticism, but sure. was reported at the time to have solved the disappearance of Charlie Ross. Right. So we have to remember that his claim went uncontested and the jury only took eight minutes to declare he was Charlie Ross. Wow. So later in 1943, after succumbing to pneumonia and eventually dying, evidently either fully convinced he was uh, Charlie Ross or being unable to admit that he deceived the world. Mm-hmm. He died and was buried in Arizona under the tombstone Charles B. Ross. Is that still on the headstone today? It still is. I visited it. I have a photograph at the headstone pointing at it and saying, this is not Charlie. <laughs> and then I put up another mock headstone, which was Nelson Miller. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. He had to he had to uphold whatever stories he told for a very long time. So that is simply fascinating. And his death certificate uh, actually says Charles Brewster Ross. Do you have that? I do. Wow. Goodness. Well, speaking of which, then, you had told me recently that you received 65 pounds of documents, writings, photographs, anything from the Gustav Blair, Ralph Blair, which was his son, correct? Right. Have you had an opportunity to look more into the contents to discover more than what you already know? Well, I have. And we've already established that Gustav Blair is really Nelson Miller and his son, Ralph, took on his name. So Ralph Blair, there's no record that he legally changed his name, but when he married, he married as Ralph Blair and had two daughters. And I'm in contact with the one surviving daughter. Her name is Twyla. She is my second cousin. Oh, wow. Twyla inherited her father's attempt to write his father's story. What he called was an autobiography of the real Charlie Ross. So Twyla passed on all of those documents to me last fall. And I was hoping to find a smoking gun that might shed some light on the when, why, with whom, and how this saga all unfolded. Unfortunately, I did not find a smoking gun uh, after looking through the documents. I'm still looking through hundreds of documents, letters, and photographs. Mm-hmm. And so far, I found collaboration and supportive evidence of our research. Ralph's daughter, Twyla, said that she watched her father. He was obsessed trying to write this story before he died. And I have between, I would say, one and 200 pages of handwritten drafts of his effort. Wow, handwritten. But based on our research, his effort was to write a story, not an autobiography. It's full of fabrication and far from the truth. And at best, we might call it an attempt at historical fiction. I see. You've had publications on what you found from 15 years of research, which I saw from your website, Blair Society, Pennsylvania Myths and Legends. Can you give us more insight on this? Sure. We were interested in getting our story out. So we wrote up a scholarly document, a research document that we were going to attempt to publish in a number of ways. But we were able to accomplish was uh, we were able to edit the Wikipedia page on the Charlie Ross kidnapping. And I'm not sure if you're aware of how Wikipedia as a volunteer online encyclopedia, a free encyclopedia, how that really is created and made. And there's a series of editors and an entire, you would not believe, detailed process for which you have to go through to submit an article. 
and we were not able to even begin to uh, qualify uh, in that process. But I was able, in kind of a workaround, I was able to modify the Wikipedia page. It's one of the primary sources of information that appears at the top of almost every Google search on Charlie Ross. So I was able to squeeze in the truth, a, a summary of our research in that document and link it to our webpage. Mm -hmm. well, I'd also been in contact with uh, the Blair Society for Genealogical Research. And this is the Blair family, historic family. Okay. And they were very interested in and published our entire research report in full. Mm -hmm. They were very happy to make it clear that Gusta Blair was not a Blair. And then I uh, got, I was contacted by Kara Hughes, and she's an author, and she included our research in the Charlie Ross chapter of her second book that she published uh, last fall, Myths and Mysteries of Pennsylvania. Another investigative reporter in New York, Amber Hunt, hosts a podcast that's called Crimes of the Centuries. And she did an episode on Charlie Ross like you did, and I made contact with her. And now she is writing a book with the same title, and she's going to cite our research in that book. You don't want to write your own book on this? You've done enough research now. I did, you know, <laughs> and I began to, uh, I'm not a writer, so I began to contact some writing um, schools and some resources and was essentially told by a couple of sources that there just wasn't a market for another Charlie Ross book. After Carrie Hagen's book came out, uh, her book is called We Is Got Him, mm -hmm. and it's the first line of the first ransom note that the kidnappers wrote to the family. And they said, we has got him, your son, Charles Ross. I legitimately tried to read that ransom note in my podcast and was very unsuccessful. <laughs> That's right. I remember how bad that English was. And, how, and well, anyway, so uh, it was thought that with Carrie Hagen's book, there just wasn't enough a market for another book on Charlie Ross. So we went to the other routes that we could. There, we did another podcast on uh, a site called Order of the Jackalope. They did an episode on Charlie Ross, just like you did. That was a phenomenal episode. Yeah. So it's this is working. It's uh, one way to get our message out. Mm -hmm. So you're going to join a list of uh, responsible podcasters and historians to help us correct history. We created our website where you uh, make contact with us. And we were very lucky that we could secure the domain charlieross.com. Yes. It's all one word, Charlie Ross. And it was available. So we snatched it up and that's where we were reporting our findings. I was shocked to see that was available. Me too, I was. Well, it seems that you disproved the myths behind Gustav Blair's claims to be Charlie Ross. Do you think this case will ever be put on record as a reverse decision by the courts? Well, you know, the result of the Arizona court ruling is reported in almost all modern accounts of the Charlie Ross kidnapping. And of those 5,000 claims to be him, only one person took that claim into a court of law. So true. And the impact of the ruling, though, did not change the Ross family narrative of the kidnapping, and it didn't have any financial or social impact on the surviving descendants. So in 2011, one of the descendants attended a book signing with Carrie Hagen on her book in Philadelphia. I was in contact with Carrie, and unfortunately, our findings were too late to meet the publication deadlines for We Has Got Him. So we didn't make that deadline, but I had collaborated quite a bit with her. 
And she followed up with the Ross descendant and asked him at that time if he would participate in a DNA study and to put an end to all this speculation. And like his grandfather, Walter Ross, he didn't even respond. So it's pretty clear that the Ross family has uh, moved on beyond this generation. Sure. There was a discussion in 1939 that the Arizona court ruling was legally recognized only in the state of Arizona. Now, there was some legal contest to whether that was true. But since the new Charlie Ross never attempted to use that name in a legal proceeding, it was never tested. So I doubt that the Ross Ross family really has any interest in reopening this uh, sad story. And you know, next year, 2024, will be 150 years after the kidnapping of Charlie Ross. It doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah. Where do you think Charlie Ross is today? Well, you know, that's the question that we are still pursuing. He is still lost. And the man buried in the, under that headstone is Charles B. Ross is not Charlie Ross. So where is he? So I'm going to talk very briefly without going into the research behind it, that there are three theories that I think maybe your audience might be interested in because it leads you somewhere from this discussion. The discussion of Gustav Blair and Nelson Miller is kind of dead end. We know that he's not Charlie Roth. So where is he? We're hoping that through these kinds of discussion, one shred or piece of evidence or information may come out that's never been reported. And we might be able to prove up one of these theories. Mm-hmm. So the first one is that Charlie Ross was hidden in plain sight and died during his captivity. So this is my best guess. And it also was advanced in Carrie Hagan's book. So Charlie Ross was hidden in plain sight in the family of his kidnapper, Bill and Marsha Mosier. It is unlikely that Bill Mosier personally hid and cared for a four-year-old child. He had to have accomplice to do that for him. And I believe that was his wife, Martha. Mm. After the Mosiers became suspect in the kidnapping, the family moved frequently among tenement houses, always ahead of the authorities. They were being tipped off by Martha's brother, who was supposedly working as an informant with the police, but was secretly telling the Mosiers about the investigation. So the Mosiers kept on the move. They were hard to trace. They didn't establish neighbor relationships, so no one would notice if another child suddenly appeared in an already large family. So true. Charlie was four years old, and he had a genetic illness that required 24-7 care and supervision. He was on medication for that sickness, and the Ross family made this known when answering one of the ransom notes as a plea to release him. Now, the authorities watched all the pharmacies in the area for anyone who requested that medication, but nobody did. Charlie could have died for lack of treatment at or around the time that the ransom notes stopped and before the kidnappers were killed in December of 1874, six months after the kidnapping. The kidnappers could no longer produce the child because Charlie had died, and they stopped trying. But they kept the facade long enough to try to get the money out of the family. So when Joseph Douglas, Mosier's accomplice, he said when he was dying that Mosier was in charge of keeping the child. So we believe it's likely that Martha did that for him, and she buried Charlie as one of her own without notice or 
or she secretly discarded the body as she had done earlier with another Moser child. Now, that's another story about the child found in the wall of the oyster bar that they owned and operated. That's another whole story. So it's very possible that there is a history that they could conceal a child. So that's the first theory, that he died, he was hidden in plain sight, and that he died from the illness because he was not treated, and he was secretly buried or discarded by the Moser family. The second theory is that Charlie was killed by plan. It's also possible that his death, we think, was planned from the beginning, that Martha or whoever hid Charlie were instructed to kill Charlie if Mosier was captured or killed. Yes. They would be charged as accomplices and go to prison for the kidnapping themselves. This would have left Martha, her children, as orphans. So, no one, so no one paid attention when she buried a child without a funeral or a pauper's grave out of the way and out of the attention of the media. She could have actually killed Charlie and buried him as one of her own children again. But given the heightened media coverage after Mosier and Douglas were killed, it would be very unlikely or extremely difficult for her or any other accomplice to bury a child publicly around that age. So we believe it's more likely that they secretly disposed Charlie's body. Yeah, and you had mentioned too, it was hiding in plain sight, easy enough to bring an extra child into the house. Well, how easy is it just to make them disappear again? Maybe they were just visiting. Exactly. So lots of speculation on that, I suppose. But, you know, something else that you had said, too, Mosier, who died first in that shootout, right? Yep. I wonder why he never disclosed Charlie's location to Douglas, who was his accomplice. Yeah, that's a really good question. And my speculation about that is he didn't trust him. The last person you want to trust is a crook. So he didn't want Joseph Douglas to turn on him to snatch the child and go for the ransom himself. Oh, yes, that makes sense. And you mentioned something, Deborah, really that I should have said right up the front, is that this is all speculation. It's been investigated many times, and there is evidence and circumstances that support these th theories, but there, it's all speculation. Mm -hmm. So the last little theory that I'll, I'll end with is the one that involved the Miller family, and that is... Uh, I think this is very unlikely, but it's also possible that a sick Charlie Ross was, in fact, delivered to the Miller Farm in Illinois, where he was supposed to be hidden. Mm -hmm. But unlike Blair's testimony in court, Charlie did not survive to be raised as Nelson Miller. Instead, he died from this same illness. Now, Nelson, Augusta Blair, in his testimony, said that the Miller uh, patriarch had killed a man who was one of the kidnappers when he came to take the child back for the ransom. That man's name was John Hawk. And this is the confession of murder that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so when they killed John Hawk to prevent him from taking the child that they had grown attached to, they buried buried him in the backyard of uh, the farmstead. So I went to Melugin Grove, Illinois, through maps and property transfers and located the homestead of Vernier and Ann Miller, just outside of Dixon, Illinois. And I began looking into hiring cadaver dogs and forensic burial technology to possibly locate the body of a child or an adult male to either prove or disprove this story. 
Wow. I found the property. The house and the trees had been torn down and the homestead evacuated into, or excavated into farmland just six months earlier, making any trace of remains undiscoverable. Oh, wow. What timing. Yep. Just really bad timing. So Charlie Ross is still lost. And we keep looking, as I said, to some shred of evidence that is yet to come forward or that hasn't been disclosed, that might tell us where we might find Charlie. We have done an extensive and are still in conversation with some other investigators on what happened to the Mosier family from the date of their marriage and when they began having children till the death and to Martha Mosier's remarriage. So we're tracing and tracking whether there are some additional burial records of the Mosier family, and we've found a few. Uh, we're still looking, and if anyone listening to this uh, podcast thinks they have any leads or information, we're uh, open, and they can reach out to charlieross.com, and we'll uh, talk with them. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I really hope, Rod, that you find the answers you're looking for, because you have put so much time, you and Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> but it has been such a pleasure talking with you today about Charlie Ross and learning about your family history. Clearly, Rod, you have put a lot of work into this and your research everybody just needs to go to charlieross.com. So I personally want to thank you for being here today. And for our listeners, you can visit charlieross.com to learn more about Rod's research efforts, where he provides an in-depth look on much of what we talked about today. Be sure to check those out and let me know or Rod know what you think about this episode. You can DM me personally on Instagram to provide feedback on this podcast, or certainly go to charlieross.com to send Rod a message about the great work that he has done on his family history and getting one step closer to solving that mystery of Charlie Ross. Rod, do you have anything more that you want to add? No, thank you. I just want to thank you so much for being a part of our effort to uh, get the truth out. And you never know from one listener, we might find a lead and we might eventually find out what happened to Charlie Ross. Yeah, I really do hope for you that you get those answers. But, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Dying to be Found, true crime podcast in our Dash mini-series. Every week, we'll bring you a variety of true crime episodes, a little dash of hope, plus special bonus episodes with some really cool guests. Before we go, we'd love for you to share this podcast with your friends and give us a five-star review. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to be Found, or visit our website at dyingtobefound.com, spelled just like you see it in our logo. Better yet, click on our Linktree account found in the show notes, where you'll find all the information in one place. Be sure to dash in every Wednesday for our mini-episodes, plus every Thursday when I get together with some of my family members. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.